being here this morning. Uh, we're going to start the way we always uh, start, and uh, we're going to speak first to our young ones. Uh, give you a heads up about what we're about to get into, kind of a preview, uh, and then we'll get into the scripture itself. So kids, true story. Uh, a few years ago, a few years ago, a bunch of scientists did an experiment, an experiment with monkeys, okay? And what they, what they did was they took a monkey and they put it in a cage and then they shook it and they rattled the cage and then they watched to see what the monkey would do. Kids, what do you think the monkey did? Yes, up there, Peyton. Went cr no, in monkey language. What did the monkeys do? <laughs> no one wants. To, come on, this is your chance to act like a monkey in church. Go for it, kids. What did they do? Thank you. I mean, nuts. They went nuts. They went crazy, and and they had all these like, you know, they had these machines that could, you know, read the monkey's heartbeat and you know the breathing and, and so the monkey's heartbeat was like going crazy the breathing was like <laughs> like really really high and so they could tell ah oh, this monkey is very stressed and mad okay now let's do this now let's put four monkeys in the cage and let's shake it and see what happens and they did that and what do you think happened then four monkeys in the cage and they shook it it broke the cage why did why would it break the cage what do you think the monkeys did? Spence. So they went so, Spence said they went so crazy that they broke the cage. You know what actually happened? They were okay. They were, they were actually pretty calm. They didn't freak out. Why? Why do you think? Paul, because there were more monkeys in the cage, which meant they had what? Company. They weren't alone. So when the hard times came, it was like, hey, hey you okay? Yeah, hey, we're, we're okay. Now here's the, here's the awesome thing, is uh, they had each other, and the scientists figured out, oh my goodness, uh, the monkeys need each other in order to get through hard times, how much more true is it of us? We need each other. Uh, uh, we need other people, especially in hard times. And it's not just other people that we need, we need the church. That's how God designed us. That's how God made us. He made us to need the church. And he made the church to need you. The church needs you, kids and your parents, and everyone else here in order to get through the hard times. You would think, man, if we get all the same people together like every week on Sundays and other days during the week, if we get the same people together over and over and over, tell you what, just wait, there's going to be fighting. But what we're told is we actually have peace because when we go through the hard times, we go through them together. And it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that gives us peace with God, and it's that peace with God that actually sustains us and gives us peace with one another. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, we're actually at, at the end of our spring, well, part one of our spring series. This spring, 
We're looking at the Apostle Paul's first and second letter uh, to the Thessalonians. So these are two of Paul's very, very earliest letters. Dealing with this stuff of Jesus has come, he is gone. Now what? Like, what do we do now? Is he coming back? Yes. Great. So what do we do in the meantime? That's what Paul's addressing. And so, like a reminder from a month ago, uh, when we were last in 1 Thessalonians, we left off, right at the end, we left off with Paul's command to the church to encourage. It says, encourage one another and build each other up. Here's how he's ending it. And now here in the final passage, Paul highlights encouraging, building one another up, doing this thing of the church, holding on until Jesus comes back. It's only going to be accomplished with the church living at peace, having a strong community. And just want to be clear here before we jump into the reading. Uh, last thing, verse 12, verse 14, verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, it says brothers. Loved ones, that is the plural form uh, that includes both masculine and feminine. He is addressing brothers and sisters. That is, he is addressing the whole church. So, with that, let's pick up and finish 1 Thessalonians. Starting in, where am I? I'm, I'm ahead, I'm ahead. Backing up. Starting in verse 12. Please follow along. As you stand, please stand for the reading of God's word and follow along. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you. Let's see, labor among you, and it's not nair over you. Uh, <laughs> it's something important there. Uh, we're going to look that up. We don't want to just, let's see. Anybody know off the top of our head? We can pause here. Who knows what that should say? Test. Kids, go. <laughs> who labor among you and are over you. And are that, there's just an extra uh, letter there. It's not supposed to be there. Okay, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very, very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, and see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. So, uh, please be seated. Starting, uh, starting back in chapter 1, so all the way back to the beginning, Paul talks to the Thessalonians like it's his nuclear family, nuclear family, uh, in order to encourage them to be at peace. He's talking to them like family, telling them to be at peace. 
with each other like a family should be. Now, you hear that. Did you hear what I said? Be at peace with each other like a family. And you hear that and you think, okay, wait, wow. What is the worst metaphor? Uh, what's the worst picture for a group of people that should be at peace? Hmm. Yeah, it's the family. Uh, if you knew my family, and, and I'm speaking as a third person here, who can, who can you know, relate? But if, as in, someone might say, if you knew my family, the last thing you would think of was peace. Come on, quote, vacation, end quote. Come on vacation with us. Come do one of the holidays with us and wait till dinner around the table. That's, and, you know, that's the mild, that's the mild stuff. And then there's the actual day-to-day -day neglect, the busyness, the avoiding, the meanness, the coldness, and then there's the, the harsh, really ugly stuff of divorce, abuse, abandonment, sickness, death in the family, so that when we say, wait, listen, when I hear peace, sorry, I do not think of family. And you could further object, you know, let's get biblical here. Uh, aren't all the important families in the Bible really, really screwed up, starting with the first family? Yes. Yes. Infighting in a family is not a shocker. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's nothing unique. Uh, that's not a revelation. But infighting in a family is unbecoming of a family. Quarreling in a family, it is unfitting for a family. A family fighting is wrong. And it's not by God's design for the family which he instituted at the beginning. Uh, and this is what parent this is what parents say to their kids <clears throat> stop choking your brother you guys are brothers you should be best friends you know that's your sister stop pulling her hair you're supposed to protect her this thing of like y'all we're a family and we got to love and treat each other with that kind of love and respect and Paul is saying the same thing uh, is true when you join the fellowship of a church. Because you're joining a family. And it is not impossible uh, for there to be infighting in a church, but it's not supposed to be that way. There is supposed to be peace. And we live, we can, we can point this up, we, li we know we live in a litigious society that people are jealous, people are zealous to protect their, their individual rights, their, their, the rights of their, their business, what have you. Uh, we know that the new school is, uh, there is this thing uh, referred to as cancel culture. It's this form of boycotting or ostracizing individuals or groups. If society, certain members of society deem that you've, you've acted in a way or, or spoken in a way uh, that is uh, deemed uh, controversial or unacceptable, so you're, you're thrust out of certain social or professional circles. That is a thing, and we still we still do it the old school way of holding on to our grudges until we get payback on those who dare to cross us. 
and sadly, this stuff makes its way into the church too. But it's not, it's not fitting. It's not right for people who claim God as their father and then they can't live at peace with one another. So mix metaphors for a second here because the Bible does it all the time. So mix metaphors for a second. The Bible says that because we are in Christ, we're all part of one body. And the eye can't look at the hand and say, I don't need you. Did you get that eye joke? That's okay. Uh, okay, and uh, no, body part is more, like, no body part is more significant than the other. Like, we, seem to th- we seem to think that it's the visible parts of the church that are more important than those who serve and labor behind the scenes. But then again, you, you think of the body, well, that heart thing and that brain thing and those lungs, those seem really, really, really important to the body. And they are. Uh, same with the church. Uh, same body, and it, uh, we are told that we have all been indwelt by the same spirit. And we have all been called to the same glorious future. Our hope in heaven. We share in that hope. That is our hope. And we are going to share in that future together forever. And it is only going to be more and more awesome. Paul says that this glorious future of heaven is the basis of our peace together now. Which means the basis of our peace here uh, is not that we all have the same background. We don't. Uh, We don't have peace because we all like the same songs. We don't. Or because we all have the same interests or because we all have the same gifts or because we all look and sound the same. We don't. What makes the church a family at peace is that we have the same Father We have the same Lord and Savior. We have the same Spirit. We are one body, and we are all going to the same place forever and ever, and we're going together. I call our church, if you've never heard me say this, uh, I call uh, our church a motley crew, and that is so exciting to me. And what should cross the mind of those who visit here what should cross the mind of those outside these walls who hear of us and this thing, what should cross their minds is this. What in the world are those people doing together? And they're at such peace with one another. And we would say, oh, well, we're a family. Same father, same king, same life-giving spirit, same future. I heard, this, uh, <clears throat> I heard this earlier this week, uh, and it reminded me, uh, I'm going to clear my throat, not in the mic in your ears. One second. Okay, I was reminded of the story, and I remember uh, every year, Valentine's Day, Ryan and I get each other a box of chocolates, because it's chocolate, and I know chocolate. Uh, I, I know chocolate. I don't need that cheat sheet that they put in there now to tell you, like, what's what. Uh, I can tell by the shape, the shade of chocolate. I'm not joking. I can tell by the weight whether we're dealing with caramel or a cream or nuts. 
I can even guess the cream flavor just by listening to it. Uh, I can tell whether uh, we're dealing with hard centers, soft centers, nuts in the center. That is the church family. We've got hard centers, soft centers, and nuts. And the goal is not that in 10 years we've done our job and you all look and sound the same. No. No, that is not the peace that Paul is calling us to. Never was, never will be. The unity in our diversity, that is the peace that we are supposed to have because we're a family. Now, I know uh, that sounds like I, I, so we read this passage, and it does, as you read it, if you, if you caught on, if you're following along, it sounds like Paul is all over the place, like just rattling off stuff that sounds, sounds good. But there's a theme. There's a theme and there's a flow of wisdom here that cultivates and expresses the main point of this peace thing that Paul is talking about. So what, you know, the, what do we, what do we do to cultivate peace in the family, Paul starts with a call to action in verses 14, 15, that we're going to have to, as a family, we're going to have to deal with the idle in our midst, the faint-hearted and the weak, and we're going to have to be patient with them, and we're going to have to only do good to them. And the idle here is, it's an okay translation. It's fine. It's good. Just as long as you're thinking idle in the sense of like undisciplined dis, or, or disruptive, out of, out of order, like getting out of line. Like think of kids and, and they're in a line, you know, in school on the way to the bathroom, little kids, and one kid gets out of line. Like that, it's kind of that idle. You don't think, well, that kid's not idle. He's actually really, really busy and should, but that's, that's the sense of this actual word is getting out of line. Um, and so what we've got to do is we've got to admonish them lovingly, warn them, hey, get back in line. But not in the sense that your vice principal warns you and your brother that you'll be expelled if you ever get out of line like the way y'all did uh, and do that again. Uh, that's, that's not what's going to uh, change everything. Paul means warn in the sense of the one brother looking at the other brother and saying, dude, we can't do this anymore. We have got to get in line and stay in line because I love you and I want us both to go to college. That kind of a warning. Uh, admonishing the unruly is only going to be received well if it's coming from someone who's talking to the other person like family. Family who cares about you and is really, really with you and is really for you. And admonishing the family, that's not fun. And we got to do it. Also, uh, we've got the faint-hearted. Uh, we've got the timid. Faint-hearted, timid, discouraged, they need to be encouraged. We know, we do know from the previous passage that the Thessalonians, they were scared of death, and they were scared of like, what happens if you die before Jesus comes back? Are we going to miss out on, you know, the heaven and that glorious future? And Paul says, back in that earlier passage, he says, encourage them. Which raises the question, like, with what? Like, oh, hey, you're scared? Okay, buck up. It's going to be okay. Hey, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. No, no, 
uh, in the last passage when Paul is talking, when he's talking about their fear, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. And then he teaches them the biblical theology of death and resurrection. And then he concludes that teaching and he says, encourage one another with these words. So someone is afraid in the church, you've got to encourage them with what? Instruction. That there is a time and there is a place to encourage each other with, with good teaching to restore and encourage peace. It's going to take, take you listening to a, a person's fear, really asking questions, and then telling them the truth, which means you need to know the truth. So what good is all this teaching and theology stuff is what you need for peace when you're staring uh, a great white shark in the face, metaphorically speaking, uh, what you need, uh, you need good teaching. You need the truth. And it says we've got to help the weak for there to be peace, the weak in our midst. There are some in the church who are weak physically, emotionally, economically, spiritually, and they are in need of the church family to come alongside them and to be strong for them to stick with them and to help them. And first things first, to help the weak, we've got to be aware of who is in need. And, and then we've got to help them overtly help. Uh, and that help might look like visiting them. It might look like taking someone out to lunch and asking that question that we all want to be asked, but no one ever asks it anymore. How are you? Uh, help might look like sending a meal w without the aid of a meal train, which are fantastic. We will continue to do those, but you don't have to wait for the meal train to take someone a meal. Help might sound like a simple phone call. And helping the weak definitely looks like praying for them. And listen, I know telling people that you're praying for them, it sounds so cliche, it sounds so, uh, you know, trite, and you do not want to come off as holier than thou. I get it. Do it. But you have my permission. Do it. And it can be really simple and sincere. You pray for someone, you shoot them a little note that says, hey, just wanted you to know, I was just thinking about you and praying for you. And Paul wraps all of that up in a bow saying, and be patient with them all. Because you know, if you've uh, ever warned the unruly, encouraged the discouraged, helped the weak, those people, they don't always respond well to those who are trying to minister to them. And God is patient with us, and so we are supposed to be patient with each other. And this last action, verse 15, of not repaying evil for evil, but only good, that is an expression of that patience. As in <clears throat> revenge, that is a basic instinct to us. Brother hits brother, brother is hitting brother back. Tale as old as time. Uh, so this ethic that Paul that Paul is laying down, don't repay evil for evil, do good to all, that is radical. It's radical, and it contributed to the church's peace 
and the watching world who doesn't understand scratching their heads. What is that? Like, who acts like that? <clears throat> and cultivating this peace with all this action comes with an attitude. You see what we're doing here is just trying to follow the flow. We could do an individual sermon on each one of these actions and attitudes. Do you, you want to take a vote? You want to, or, or, let's keep following the flow. We're just following the flow here uh, of seeing that these actions come with an attitude adjustment involving rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, and a right attitude towards Scripture. And this stuff is not random either. Uh, what does being joy, so we ask just a simple question, what is joyful, being joyful have to do with peace? It says rejoice always, meaning in good times and even in bad times, rejoice. Uh, that does not mean don't be sad in the bad times. That's that funny stuff we've talked about uh, quite a bit. Joy and sadness, they go together just fine. But when we react wrongly, when we react wrongly to the hard times with bitterness, when we react to the hard times with hatred or with gossip, envy, that stuff, we, that, that is not a people at peace. But when we rejoice, even when things don't go well, not an emotional high as in, oh, man, oh, I'm really sick. Being sick is my favorite. Like, no. But it is an, it's an abiding attitude. Joy is an abiding attitude. It is a stance of the heart. Regardless of what comes, because we trust the God of peace is at work, using that hard stuff to change us for the better according to his purposes. That is joy, and that is, it leads to a people at peace. And that's not normal, and the world will wonder, what is that? joy and peace. And then we can just take the next two together to really point up this flow. Rejoice always, pray unceasingly, give thanks in every circumstance. Okay, what's prayer and thanks got to do with rejoicing and what's it got to do with peace? Again, think of the flow. If rejoicing is taking joy in God and his plan, that is a God word attitude. It's a posture toward God. And that is a prayerful attitude. And that prayerful attitude can be ongoing. And that is inevitably going to lead to a grateful attitude toward God and His grace and His gifts and His love. A persistent, joyful attitude fosters an unceasing, prayerful attitude fosters a thankful attitude in all circumstances that is going to generate a peaceful people. And one important, one important clarification here. Someone's going to say, okay, impossible. Rejoicing, praying, thanking always without ceasing, ceasing in all circumstances, well then you couldn't do anything else. You know, but remember, Paul is describing attitude here, not so much action. So during our daily activities, we must focus on the task at hand. 
if my y'all if my dentist on Thursday is in the middle of scraping my teeth with that hard metal hook thing and then he stops and he says you know hey Blake sorry you're a pastor so I think you'll get this I, I just I need a few minutes to get back to rejoicing and praying and thanking God and then he closes his eyes with his hands and that hook thing still in my mouth I am just gonna freak out No, okay, during our daily activities, we must focus on the task at hand, but we, we don't ever lose sight of God. We don't ever lose sight of God in our spiritual peripheral vision. Isn't cultivating this attitude, <clears throat> it's like driving, and when we are not aware of him in our spiritual peripheral vision, that's when we go the wrong way. That's when we get lost. That's when accidents happen. Now, the next few verses, again, they might seem to be more Paul pithy, prattling, but not to us. No, not at this point. We see, well, we see what's happening here. We see there's a flow, and the flow continues in verses 19 to 22. <clears throat> Part of the attitude adjustment <clears throat> that leads to peace in the church family is confronting a problem in the church family with, uh, there's a problem with prophecy. A problem with, it, Paul says, not quenching the spirit who is the source of true prophecy and yet understanding that there are false prophets among you. So, Paul commands them to evaluate all this prophetic content and to hold on to the good and to reject the bad. And, okay, so since prophetic revelation ceased with the apostles, according to the working of the Spirit himself, according to God's own will and desire, you know, that could be another thing we will talk about one day, uh, but just for what it's worth, what does that have to do? What does that have to do with us right now in the church today? It's this. Our attitude must also be one of holding on to the truth of God's revelation. The revelation that we have in prophetic scripture, and we have got to abstain from false teachings that are based on this revelation, but they've twisted it. So if you treat the prophetic scripture with contempt, that will quench, that will dampen like a wet blanket the Spirit's work through the Scriptures, which will suppress the peace that comes from it. If you disregard the Spirit-inspired Scripture or you change it, chaos, chaos will follow. Paul then begins to end this passage in the letter with a prayer in verses 23 and 24. And Paul's prayer here at the end and the fact that we rejoice in and we pray to and we thank God according to his word, it shows us that God and God alone is the source of this peace. As in how is all this peace achieved? It's by God's gracious activity. Kind of like this. <clears throat> uh, I was talking to my parents and my in-laws earlier this week about the Masters Tournament. The Masters is one of the four major golf tournaments every year. It's that green jacket thing in Augusta. 
Uh, if you hate golf, if you could care less, just please indulge me for, for two minutes with this amazing illustration. Uh, they, play, they play this thing over four days, okay? From Thursday to Sunday. So it, it, it's, it, today's the day uh, someone's going to win it. And it is, it's fun watching it at home. If you watch it at home, you get to see all the good shots. You get to see all the guys who are leading and, and see, and, and you get to see who's making their way up, who's making a move, moving up the leaderboard. But if you're there, which I've never been, but if you're there, it's really tricky. If you're there, you're on an 18 hole golf course. It's, it's hard, it, you know, it's hard to know where to position yourself to see the best golf. Uh, it's 18 holes, you can't just run around the course looking for all the best shots, it's just not how it works. Again, I've never, I've never been there, but I've been told by people who have that cheers, cheers from the crowd are very, very loud. They bounce off all the beautiful trees uh, that are everywhere there. So on the last day, like today, Sunday, you cheer really loudly if you're witnessing big action. And part of the joy that, you know, is, uh, erupting in cheer is because of the fact of what you're witnessing, of what you're, the action you're getting to see. And, and <laughs> my father-in-law told me that, and part of it is to let everyone else on the course know where the action is, which that's a bit, you know, I said, well, that's a bit counterintuitive, like, because you'd think you'd want to keep it on the down low so that you can keep it all to yourself, so that you can follow along, so it'd be more like, yeah, you know, a genuine golf clap. Come on, you're doing this. Yeah, come on, let's keep going. But that's not how they do it. They go nuts. They just, they're, they're screaming their heads off. Everybody get over here. You've got to see this. What's going to cultivate peace in the church? To cultivate and share in a jo joyful attitude together or to keep our joys private to ourselves? And, keep going with me, that's rejoicing. You, think you know where I'm going to go. What inevitably, what inevitably goes with the rejoicing at the masters, you can hear it on the TV. The crowd is yelling the name of, you know, the golfers that they are uh, cheering for, and they're yelling at them like they know them. Rory, yay, oh yeah, come on, you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And, you know, then they'll, like, throw out terms of endearment. Oh, come on, Roars, yeah, baby, and, you know, Cooch, you know, Matt Kuchar, and it's just, like, yelling at them like, like I know you. You know, yeah, you know, and the, they'll give, you know, <clears throat> waves and nods. Okay, that is, trust, that is a prayerful attitude of directed at the one who is good, who is at work doing good, who's the source of your joy. And, and they've got your attention, always at the least in the periphery. I mean, even as you're walking along, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're, you're following. And when they make a good shot, make a great putt, you get the cheers, the eruption of the crowd. That's the thanks. The thank, that's a thankful attitude for all the good that they are doing in your life. And what you don't want to be at the tournament or at home watching it with other people, you don't want to be the wet blanket. Uh, you know, Rory is going to win. He's, he's going to do it. Odds stacked against him. How can he come back? He didn't start well. I don't know how he'll do it, but he'll do it. And then the wet blanket quenching, uh, everyone's spirit says, now Rory's going to screw it up again like he did 10 years ago. 
no way he can come back. He's down and uh, and he's out. Nah, it'd be much better if like Patrick Reed won it again. Really? Nothing against Patrick. Patrick, if you're listening, I wish you were here. Uh, rather than winning the Masters again. Um, so uh, Rory's gonna he's gonna do it. Except I don't know if he made the cut. Did he make the cut? No. <laughs> So he's out. Okay, but you know what? There's the wet blanket. No, nah, he's already out. He's done. He can't win. That's what they said about Jesus. Uh, and so you, you gotta, you, you can't have that quenching spirit. We've got to hold on to the truth of Scripture, even when the wet blanket world says the gospel it is not good news. That Jesus, yeah, he's down and out. Oh, he is. He's out. He's gone, and he's not coming back. And he can't save you. And he can't save me. Uh, or, you know, your gospel, it's exclusive. It's judgmental. You Christians, you're bigots, you're hateful, and your gospel is hate speech. Or the quenching of the Spirit isn't simply a rejection, it's a twisting of the gospel. You know, if you have false teaching in the church, in churches who exist for themselves and their own purposes, and not for Jesus, that is not helping anyone. And I, I heard this earlier this week. There's just some good, you know, ways to think about what is, you know, maybe a false teaching church look like. You know, churches that are purely about entertainment, not teaching scripture, because it's the entertainment that keeps people coming back, and that doesn't offend anybody. Or the churches that are about legalism, believing that the law changes people. So they form an insulated, quote-unquote, holy culture that sees unbelievers as people to be avoided rather than the mission field. Or, you know, churches that are only about feelings and experience, and there's this incredible pressure all the time to feel the work of the Spirit, which is artificial. And it ends up burning you out. Or the churches that are just about the pastor's agenda, you know, whether from the left or the right of the political spectrum, you know, what does the pastor not like about society? And whatever he doesn't like, you're not supposed to like. And if you don't speak out the way he speaks out, then he threatens you that, you know, it's very probable you're not a genuine Christian. Uh, these churches that are all about earthly authority, men's authority over women, or the authority of elders and pastors over the congregation, and the church ends up really being about them, the people in charge. Or churches that are, that are really about marketing. You know, it's a gospel church, but the church uh, is marketing the gospel, and all the applications are about getting involved in their church and in their programs and giving more and more and more to their church. And it's about their kingdom, not Jesus's kingdom. Now, I know an objection here is, is something like... Well, <laughs> It'd be really easy, this is if you're into golf, it'd be really easy to be joyful uh, and all that stuff at the Masters, but I'm not at the Masters. It'd be really easy to be that way at an uh, Astros World Series, like the one we won in 2017. Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, or it'd be really easy to feel that way at the beach. Or if I was in the mountains. You know, or if I was on a river fishing. If I was at a concert again. But I'm not. I'm in my suffering, and I'm in just the day-to-day -day grind of it. I, I know. I know. 
uh, everyone at the Masters, they're miserable too. And, and you don't live at the Masters. They're all going through something. And the fan next to you at the Astros game, they're hurting in terrible ways. That person dancing next to you at the concert is crying in their soul about some tribulation they're going through. So this is just master, that master's thing. It's just an illustration uh, of an even greater, infinitely more awesome reality. It's in our rejoicing, our praying, our grateful hearts holding on to this gospel. It must be tied to God's victory over evil through Jesus. You know, whether it's war or it's sports, everyone loves winning. Okay, but how much more is that true for us? Loved ones, that Jesus really has won his victory over death and over sin and over the devil on the cross and in his resurrection, and he did that for us. Do we have the same kind of joy and awe and gratefulness about, you know, about the cross, about Jesus that we do with, you know, whatever it is, masters, asterisks, concerts, fishing, that stuff that has no eternal significance to it. What about Jesus? Crazy, crazy thing here is for Paul to even be talking about peace must mean the context in which we live is one of war. Now, I, loved ones, I don't care who you are, people out there, whether you're a Christian or you're a secularist, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whoever you are, you are at war, and the only enemy that really matters is God himself. Everyone has turned their backs on him. They've sided with his enemy. Whether we know it or not, we've rebelled. And God, because he is totally just and good, he will pour out his wrath on all evil and sin and on all sinners. But God is this really, really amazing enemy. God sets out to save his enemies who hate him and wish he was dead. The peace that we have has been gifted to us and it was purchased by another. The peace that we have, verse 23, is from the God of peace. As in Jesus lost all his peace on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, taking the wrath of God, died with a scream, and he died alone. And Jesus lost all his peace so that we could have eternal peace. And because he's done it, because we have peace with God, loved ones, we have peace with one another. That is the promise of Scripture, that the cross, the gospel, Jesus is our peace. And that is a peace that no one can take away from us. We really do have it. And so we need to work it out together until the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the peace that we cannot achieve by ourselves. We thank you for the peace that Jesus has achieved for us. And Father, we pray Paul's prayer, and we pray it for ourselves, that may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely, and may our whole spirit and soul and body 
be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he who calls us is faithful, and you will surely do it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.